One of the keys to reading uh, John is to hold in mind the main themes of the prelude. The first 18 verses of the Gospel of John function as a prelude, or some people call it a prologue, but like a good musical prelude, it hints at all the themes that will resound through the rest of the book. And it's, I think, pretty important to hold those themes together for the rest of the series. So every now and then, I'll give a little summary of what the prelude hints at so that we can be in the right headspace. The first thing we saw in the prelude was that this is not just a biography of a human life, but an account of God-made flesh. Now, that's important to hold in mind because once we get to the kind of um, end of chapter 1 and on through chapter 2 and so on, it does feel like a biography. It feels like a normal historical biography of a normal human life, and it is that. But we've been told right in the very first verse, actually, of this biography that it's way more than that. You've got to read it at another level. This is nothing uh, other than the disclosure of God in the flesh. God has breached uh, eternity and entered into history. Uh, And holding that in mind will help us with a few pretty interesting details in the passage we're about to hear. The second uh, theme of the prelude that weaves its way through the whole gospel is that it invites us to ask the question constantly, who is the true light? Who is the one who best illuminates life? Uh, We're introduced to people who are great people. The Baptist, John the Baptist, is he the great light or is it Jesus? What about the priests of the temple? Are they the light or is it Jesus? And so on uh, through the uh, whole Gospel of John. And uh, it's a question that confronts us today because we're going to read about the first disciples of Jesus who have to work out who is the true light. The third thing to hold in mind is that this is a story of both rejection and acceptance. And the prelude is pretty strong in saying uh, this, is, this story is going to go in both directions. And of course, the rejection theme uh, climaxes in the death of Jesus, uh, the uh, leadership in Jerusalem turn against him and orchestrate his execution. But there's also an acceptance theme that uh, weaves through the whole gospel, and that is that people do believe in him and, uh, and become Christians. And we're going to see that writ large today as we're introduced to the first people to really accept Him. And we're going to be introduced to the apostles, the first disciples of Jesus, and we're going to do it in the order in which John lays it out for us. Uh, Firstly, we're going to look at Andrew, some anonymous guy, and Simon Peter in uh, John chapter 1, starting at verse 35. Thanks, Yusuf. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Isn't it interesting that uh, the two first disciples of Jesus were formerly disciples of John the Baptist? 
there was a, quite a crossover in the movements of John the Baptist and Jesus, and uh, part of the cohort of John the Baptist becomes uh, the cohort uh, of Jesus. John the Baptist, as good as tells them, go. That's way more important. Over there. Go there. And they do. They do exactly what their master said. They go and follow this other guy. Uh, and notice, though, it's really interesting, only one of them's named. Did you get that? We're told that two, but then only in verse 40 are we introduced to one of them. Uh, verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, who was one of the two who just heard what John said uh, and had followed Jesus. So it's Andrew, an anonymous guy, which is kind of weird given in the rest of chapter 1, where we're introduced to the first disciples of Jesus, they're all named. So we'll meet Simon Peter, and we'll meet Philip, we'll meet Nathaniel, but not, not this guy, he's just an anonymous guy. Why? The most popular explanation, and some of you have done the reading, uh, is that it's actually the author himself. It's an oblique, polite third-person reference to the author that was part of a kind of polite convention of the day. We know who the author is because the title of this gospel is uh, Gospel According to John. All right, so we've already known that from the title of the work, but all the references in this gospel to the author are third person and oblique. Uh, so, for example, we've talked before about the five references later in John's gospel to the disciple Jesus loved. Remember this? The beloved disciple, referred to in the third person, it's an oblique reference. Uh, to the, the author of this uh, text. And even when he concludes his gospel, in the last two lines of the whole gospel, he doesn't actually name himself. He refers to himself in the third person just as he does back here in chapter 1. Here's the very last lines of, uh, of this gospel. Having narrated a little story about himself, he then goes, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. This, by the way, creates what Cambridge scholar Richard Borkham calls the inclusio of eyewitness testimony, which is a tricky ancient device where the first and last witnesses mentioned in a text are the same person, indicating to ancient readers on whose testimony the text relies. We are reading the account of an actual eyewitness who pops himself into the text at all sorts of points, but does it in this oblique uh, third-person way. And this probably accounts for that weird detail coming back to chapter 1, verse 39. Uh, did you get that little time signature? So Jesus says to them, come and you will see. So they, Andrew and anonymous guy, went and saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Now, four has no theological significance at all. It's just the sort of thing John remembered. I just remember it was, it was four when we first spent time with Jesus. I, I think you'd remember it. And he gives us a little time signature. There are lots of little eyewitness details uh, throughout this whole book, and I'll try and point them out as we come across them. The other thing to notice in this section is the series of titles heaped upon Jesus as a way of highlighting uh, his authority and his mission. So the first one, obviously, back in verse 35, is the Lamb. So the next day, John, the Baptist, uh, was there with two of his disciples. We end up knowing that Andrew and John. When he uh, saw Jesus passing, he said, look, the Lamb of God. Now, we saw last week, John said the same thing to the crowds, but said, the Lamb of God who 
takes away the sin of the world. This title of Jesus refers to him fulfilling the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, of the Jewish Scriptures, where a lamb or a goat was sacrificed for sins. And as we track this story of Jesus right through to its climax, Jesus is crucified when? During the Passover festival, which was the great festival where a lamb is sacrificed in the temple, and then eaten by the worshippers, but sacrificed in the temple. And that's when Jesus dies on the cross. So it makes sense that Jesus is the lamb. It points forward to his mission to save us by his death. Now, Andrew and John uh, hear this, lamb, the lamb. We've been waiting for the lamb of God. And they leave their master, John the Baptist, and go and follow Jesus and bestow upon him further titles. Verse 38 Turning around, Jesus saw them, these two new disciples, following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Rabbi. It's not common practice to call Jesus Rabbi, is it? Nor even teacher, which is its rough translation. We think of Jesus as Lord and Savior, but here's a lovely little reminder You don't get to trust Jesus as the sacrificial lamb without also trusting him as your teacher. And a huge proportion of John's gospel is just teaching. And we're meant to listen to him as our rabbi. Andrew then rushes to share his newfound joy with his brother, Simon. And we get another title, verse 41. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon. Don't you love that? Just pause there. He stumbled across Jesus and he goes, I've got to tell my brother. He'll love this. The first thing Andrew did is find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, brackets, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. So we get this interesting title, Messiah, and then do you notice how John stops and says, oh, when you translate that, it's Christ. Do you see that? This is a little insight into the two audiences I've said before John has in mind. He's got his Jewish audience, who will mainly know Aramaic and Hebrew, uh, for which the great title is Messiah, right? And, but Greek audiences don't know that word, they just know the word Christos, but they mean exactly the same thing in different languages. What does it mean? Anointed one. The one anointed by God to speak and act. Anointed with power to speak and to act. And as Messiah, Jesus exercises his authority over Simon by giving him a new name on the spot. Right? So Andrew's dragged his brother along and says, look, the Messiah. And the first thing the Messiah says is, Simon, I've got a new name for you. What? Verse 42. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him, Simon, and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Kephas, which when translated is Peter. Let's think about this. His mom and dad had given him the really good name, Simon. It's the most popular Jewish name of the time. We know this from all sorts of records. Simon, a huge number of boys were called Simon. We think about one in six boys was called Simon. This is probably why he he was actually called Simon, son of John. So to distinguish him from, you know, Simon, son of Joseph, Simon, son of Judah, Simon, son of, you know, Zebedee and so on. 
But here's the thing. Jesus... The Lamb of God, the Rabbi, the Messiah has authority to change Simon's name on the spot. Uh, You're now going to be called by the Aramaic word for rock. Kephas. And John stops and says, oh, but in Greek we say Petros, Peter. Okay. Now, I don't believe in papal succession. Okay? The, the, the doctrine that our Roman Catholic friends sincerely believe, and that is that just as Peter was the rock, so every um, bishop of Rome since is the rock of the church. And so whoever is the bishop of Rome is the pope the, the, and, and the founder or, or the, the, the sort of the, sta- the stability unifying leader uh, of the whole church in the world. Now, I don't believe that. I don't find it in scripture, etc., etc. But I think Protestants have have, um, often balked at what is really clear in the Gospels, and in letters of Paul, by the way. Peter was the chief apostle. He was the number one. He was the rock of the group. And this is Jesus putting onto him this term that you're you're the rock of this group. You're the rock of this group. Henceforth, you'll be called Kephas. Or if you a Greek speaker, Petros. Peter. But this passage is more about Jesus' authority than Peter's. So don't let me get too down that rabbit hole. Because changing someone's name in antiquity was usually the role of a master to a slave, or in particular in the Jewish tradition, it was God's job. God in the Old Testament had the authority to change names as he liked. Here's a couple of uh, texts from the Old Testament to give you a flavor for this. Um, Isaiah 56, to those who hold fast my covenant, says the Lord, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Or Isaiah 62, the nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. And here is Jesus saying to Simon, I bestow on you a new name. There is a subtle claim to immense authority here. And while this is particularly true for Peter, getting a new name, it's also true for every disciple. Every disciple gets a new name, according to that Isianic language, where henceforth known by the name of Jesus, actually. We're Christians. Christians. We take his name. The Lord calls us, grants us a new name, a name better than sons and daughters, and sends us into the world to share our joy. Which is exactly what we see the next disciple doing as we bump into Philip and then Nathaniel. If you could read from verse 43. Thanks. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, 
I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Again, this section is partly about the authority of the first disciples as the founding eyewitnesses of all this stuff, but the emphasis clearly falls on Jesus' authority. So I don't want to spend much time sort of dealing with the apostles themselves because the indications of Jesus' authority are at least fivefold. And the fifth one is extraordinary. I know that sounds like an internet meme. You know, here are five reasons for this, and you won't believe number five. But really, you won't believe number five. It's awesome. But let me run them through. The, the indications of Jesus' authority come thick and fast. First, in verse 43, Jesus says to Philip, follow me, and fully expects Philip to drop everything and follow him. I know we have this idea of Jesus meek and mild, going around just being lovely, but actually he walked up to people and said, uh, you should follow me. And they go, okay, yeah, I'll follow you. The authority is incredible. And this is a, a theme that weaves all the way through the gospel and into the world, right to today, where Jesus says to every single one of us, follow me, follow me. Secondly, uh, Philip's argument to his friend Nathaniel there in verse 45 is basically that Jesus fulfills everything we've ever talked about from the Old Testament. Verse 45, Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, that's the Jewish Old Testament, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This too is a theme we find throughout the Gospel of John, throughout the whole New Testament. Jesus hasn't come to cancel or contradict the Old Testament. He's come as its climax, and you probably don't really understand the full story of Jesus unless you understand the Old Testament. He is the climax of the Old Testament, not its contradiction. Now, Nathaniel resists that idea at first on the grounds that what comes out of Nazareth? It's Nazareth. It's like saying, you know, the saviour of the world came from, um, it's very hard to pick a town, isn't it, you know, without offending someone. Let me say Slough. Anyone from Slough? No one's from Slough. You know where the office was was built? Slough or Bognorizus or something like that. And, And I come closer to home, you know, like, Grong Grong? No one's from Grong Grong, are they? Condiella, right? It's like, what comes from there? Not much comes from there. And Nathaniel's probably thinking, I, there's nothing in, the, in, the, in my scriptures about something happening in Nazareth, huh? But Jesus overcomes Nathaniel's skepticism with the third indication of his authority, his divine insight, verse 47. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, which could just sound like flattery. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. We've never met. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Hmm. That would have been spooky for Nathanael. By the way, Nathaniel probably wasn't just lounging under the fig tree, you know, watching Netflix, whatever. There's a little bit of evidence that under the shade of a fig tree was a good traditional place for studying the Scriptures in Jewish tradition. So Nathaniel's probably being cast as a real student of the Scriptures. That would also explain 
why Philip's argument to him was all about how Jesus fulfills the Scriptures, because here's Nathaniel, a student of the Scriptures, pouring over the Scriptures, and, Je- and Jesus says to him, I saw you when you were studying under the fig tree. That's, what's, that's I, think, I think, what's uh, going, going on here. And Nathaniel responds, of course, by heaping on him further titles. This is the fourth indication of authority. Verse 49 Then Nathanael said, Rabbi, well, we've seen that one already, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Son of God, King of Israel. Now, Greeks and Romans in uh, John's audience already knew the title Son of God, but they thought of it as an emperor. Okay, so we've talked about this before, that the most important coin of this very period, the Tiberian denarius, uh, actually has um, on, minted around it uh, that the, Tiberius Caesar is Divi Augusti Filius, that is, son of the god Augustus, uh, who was his uh, adoptive father. So Tiberius was already known as Divi Filius, son of God. Now here is Nathaniel saying, son of God to, to Jesus. But, but the thing is, Romans had their idea of the son of God going back only... Um, a couple of decades by the time uh, Tiberius was around. But the Jews used the term Son of God for their coming Messiah. And this is the real tradition that Nathaniel is referring to because in Psalm chapter 2, Psalms 2, you get uh, this reference to the anointed one, the coming Messiah, who is both king and the Son of God. Let me read it uh, for you. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his Messiah, it literally says. The Lord rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, the holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. This is now the king responding. He said to me, you, king, are my son. God saying to the king, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. And all of these ideas come together in Nathaniel's confession. You, rabbi, are son of God and king of Israel. Uh, Jesus commends Nathaniel in verse 50 for his insight. And then adds, you ain't seen nothing yet, Nathaniel. Pretty much, that's what he says. And here is the fifth and climactic indication of Jesus' authority. He is our window to God. Verse 50 is really the most extraordinary few lines in this passage. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, now it's suddenly a plural you in the Greek of the gospel. We've talked about this before, haven't we? English doesn't have a distinction between singular and plural. Greek does. The first one, you believe, is Nathaniel, singular, but now it's yous, as in all five of them collected together. Very truly I tell yous, yous will... So I apologize, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. 
We've seen before that Son of Man is Jesus' preferred way of referring to himself, uh, so I won't spend much time on that. But what's this business of angels descending and ascending on him as Son of Man? Well, it's a precise reference to something that happened to only one person in the whole history of Israel. Jacob, the founder of the 12 tribes of Israel, had an experience that uses this exact language where he saw a ladder or a staircase, the original stairway to heaven, where angels were ascending and descending. And this is why this was our Old Testament reading today. Jesus is precisely referring to this. So it's important that we get this in our head in order to understand what Jesus was saying. Genesis 28, Jacob had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, precisely the language Jesus uses. There above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Jacob, the founder of Israel, saw a stairway on which angels ascended and descended. In other words, this is a bridge between heaven and earth. This is the opening of heaven. This is the touch point between God and humanity, we could say. And, and the revelation that Jacob gets in this moment is that this blessing is going to be for all nations, not just Israel. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is saying to Nathaniel and the other four disciples, you're going to see all of this in me. How awesome is this place, Jacob cried. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And that is the cry of every Christian. Because when you really know who Jesus is, you understand him to be the staircase, the gate of heaven. He is where heaven touches the earth. He is the presence of God. The house of God, as Jacob says. And, and actually, you turn over a page and, and next week when we explore chapter 2, you'll see Jesus challenging the temple in Jerusalem, the house of God in the first century, and he basically says, I'm the true temple. So it's all related to this idea of him being the very presence, the, the, the locus of God. There are so many things in uh, this passage that I could emphasize today. And they'd all be fine, good. I mean, one, the authority of the eyewitnesses appointed by Jesus to preach and write down this gospel. I mean, that is an extraordinary thing that we're used to, but we have a, we have a first century eyewitness account of Jesus in our hot little hands. Or two, I could emphasize that the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament and can't be fully understood without it. I mean, that'd be a great point for us to reflect on today. Or three, that seeing Jesus not just as Saviour and Lord, 
but we must also see him as rabbi and our teacher. I mean, you could flip that both ways, couldn't you say? You could say, you mustn't see him only as teacher. You must also see him as Savior and Lord. But actually, I reckon long-term Christians get this back to front. We only see Jesus as Savior and Lord, and we forget that he's our teacher. He's our rabbi. We listen to his words. Or fourth, I could emphasize that we're all called to follow Jesus and to share this joy with others, just as Andrew does with Simon and Philip does with Nathaniel. And all of that would be great. But that's not really where I want to land today. The most significant thing is Jesus' final words about being the gate of heaven. In the life of Jesus, the veil is lifted. The human search for the absolute, for God, is over. Jesus is God's presence. He is the gate of heaven open to us. And this doesn't just mean heaven when you die, by the way. Um, It means the love of heaven in your life now. The guidance of heaven in everyday life. Heaven reassuring you. And yes, of course, when you die, heaven welcoming you. All of this is found in Jesus. All of it's found in Jesus. That's what our passage is saying today. So, you know the most practical thing I could say at the end of today's passage? doesn't sound very practical, but it is. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And you will see greater things than you could ever imagine. Fix your eyes on Jesus, and you'll see heaven opened up. Angels descending, ascending. Keep your eyes on him. Listen to him as teacher. Follow him as Messiah. Depend on him as the Lamb of God sacrificed for our sins. Love him as Son of God and King. And best of all, allow yourself to be loved by him who is God unveiled. Lord, will you please give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, wills to accept with humility your truth. How we pray that each one of us, wherever we are in our journey, might look more closely at Jesus and indeed see the gate of heaven. We ask it in his name. Amen.